Hello everyone and welcome to the third and final instalment of Urban Mobility of the Future. The Fujitsu podcast asking what the future of getting from A to B looks like and whether we're ready for it. My name is David Altsbeth, Director of Data and Demonstrators at the Connected Places Catapult, the new name for the Future Cities and Transport Systems Catapults. In this series, we've looked at what our cities might look like in the future and how urban transport systems will both shape and be shaped by these environments. We've tackled how to ensure urban mobility remains accessible to all as it becomes more connected. Now, in the final episode of this three-part series, we'll consider the role that co-creation will play in making these future transport systems a reality and aim to sculpt a collaborative model that could be used to deliver smart transport services for urban environments. Joining me on the final leg of this journey into the future of urban mobility are experts from across the technology and transport sectors, and I'll hand over to them now to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Rabi Arzuni and I'm the transport CTO for Fujitsu. I work with a lot of our transport uh, customers talking about innovation, co-creation and the future, um, very much focused around how um, integrated mobility is going to look like in the future. Um, So this is a a very important subject when discussing the future with our customers. Hello, I'm Johanna Randall and I'm a Head of Station Operations for High Speed 2. Um, We start operating our first service in December 2026 and I'm part of the organisation that will be responsible for running the first services. So my mind is very much in the future of what transport looks like and how we deliver that for future consumers. And I'm Robin Gissing, I'm an innovation technologist at Heathrow Airport. Um, I work across the business to um, to look at technology uh, against business challenges at Heathrow and I have a particular interest and specialism in autonomous vehicles and I head up some of our strategy work on autonomous on the air side. Lovely, thank you very much everyone. So a term that's come up plenty over the course of this series is mobility as a service. Now, by its nature, this approach to getting around is dependent on being able to move seamlessly between different modes of transport and their providers. And we've seen, for example, the Maz Global Limited WIM app that came out from Helsinki that's now been deployed in West Midlands and other cities around the world. So if we're moving towards a future in which mobility as a service is the norm, can we expect collaboration and co-creation between different transport service providers and other organisations to become the norm too? It depends who you talk to, as mobility as a service has got a different definition at the moment. Um, and this is where I think co-creation and, and collaboration is going to become really, really critical here and, and vital. Um, I think it's only when we talk and, and, and come together, uh, it's going to be the norm. Uh, because what we're trying to do is really focus on a purpose where we're all working towards. Um, I think um, there's a lot of um, terminologies uh, and a lot of the, the market from a technology point of view is, is actually flooded at the moment. A, about conversations around integrated mobility and mobility as a service and solutions that it's going to support that. Um, My view, if we don't talk openly around what that shape looks like in the future, we'll end up doing our own thing, which really defeats the point of collaboration and working together towards a, a, a common vision. Exactly. And Johanna, how does this work with HS2? Um, I I think probably HS2 within National Rail at the moment is a bit of an outlier. 
um, because you don't actually see much collaboration going on because we very much work within our silos. And I think if National Rail and other transport providers within UK don't start working in a collaborative way and continue to work within their silos, within inflexible commercial offers and exclusive arrangements, then actually in the future we're going to be a less attractive service, we're going to be less usable because other services are going to come along and make us do it, you know, because we're already seeing it with, sort of like um, Ravi's mentioned, a couple, you know, in Helsinki, but also with CityMapper launching their trial as a mobility as a service offering across London services, which they're actually offering the subscription service at a loss because they've kind of seen it as that the data is the value and what they can do to be able to continue to offer a personalised service. And they're not just looking at London. They're looking at it a bit like a supermarket would be where bread and milk is the lost leader and they're getting access to everybody's data because what they're truly targeting is a global market that seamlessly allows everybody to travel throughout the world without just thinking about, I just want to travel in London today, but tomorrow I want to travel in Rome or I want to travel in Tokyo. It's a completely global offer. Yeah, I think you're right there. It's collaborate or be left behind in a global world. And Robin, how's Heathrow managing mobility as a service? So it's an interesting one because Heathrow is very different to to like, say, HS2 um, because, you know, we're effectively just the station bit. Um, so, it, you know, the, the passengers that travel through Heathrow are doing exactly that, traveling through us. Um, they're not our passengers. Um, but it's really interesting seeing, you know, how the collaboration works already um, between the, the different transport providers that go through Heathrow, because Heathrow is not just an airport, really. It's it's a transport hub. You know, we've got one of the, uh, the UK's busiest, if not busiest, coach stations uh, there and that's people not just coming to Heathrow it's actually people connecting to different coach services because we are that hub um, we've got you know several train stations as well and the fact that you can buy you know a rail ticket from from say Bristol to Heathrow that involves two different services one coach one train you know that sort of stuff's already started to spring up and it's become part of the norm um, it's interesting that you've not seen that in other parts of the, the area so you know, you can't necessarily buy a train ticket that has a coach for the last, like, you know, five miles or something at the minute um, in quite the same way as you can to not just Heathrow, but to all the airports, really. You look at, like, Edinburgh and, and Gatwick and places like uh, Manchester. A lot of that sort of stuff already happens. Um, so it's quite interesting as a sort of a, a look at for the rest of the industry to actually go and look at what's going on at airports, not just in Britain, but globally, about how that mobility of a service offer is because um, there's some lessons that can be learned from it, but there's also some pretty interesting examples as well. I think Heathrow is, 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 is a start. Um, for me, it's, um, it, it seems to happen in, in islands and pockets, right, yeah. in Heathrow and Gatwick and, and, and like, you know, city airports and, and Victoria Station and so on and so forth. Um, but what, for, for mobility as a service, uh, it's got to be integrated, yeah. A, and also not just from a transport operator, you know, how finance comes to it, how retail comes into that. So for us to have that kind of seamless uh, transaction, you know, transport operators and companies within the transport sector needs to break down those barriers, A, between themselves 
and co-create. Uh, and that might be a little bit uh, uncomfortable for some business models, but that needs to happen. But that's kind of the nirvana, though, isn't it? Because as a, as a transport operator or an asset owner, um, do I need to be able to provide that? Or actually, do I just need to enable others to provide that service for me? And I just stick to what I know and I just integrate in with everything else. And that's where the co-creation comes in. Yep. Yeah, yeah we're very much talking about how do we move from pockets here to a seamless experience for users who live and work in a global market. All your customers live outside the pockets of the examples that we've talked about. And it's a very interesting point. Should the transport providers be the providers of the solution or the enabler? So talking about uh, co-creation and collaboration, what does it actually look like in practice for your companies? And how might this approach better enable the future of transportation? Uh, yeah, so um, you know we've done uh, quite a lot of uh, co-creation um, as part of the innovation function at Heathrow. Um, realistically, it's for some of the quite difficult problems you might have, especially in an airport, um, and challenges that we face that need solving. You know, realistically, you're only really going to do that through co-creation um, because. You know, we don't have all the experts that he thrown to do everything. That would be absolutely you know, mad. Um, and by utilising, you know, different sectors and and slightly different viewpoints as well, um, that's where where we've found it anyway. That's where the benefit comes from, um, because you can create something that's that's maybe slightly different and it's like a different uh, sort of product or service or, or solution that anyone would have come up with, you know, in like a, you know, a round table or a brainstorming session or anything like that. Um, because you've got those different viewpoints in the room and by having, um, you know, multiple stakeholders in that, that's realistically the only way you're going to actually innovate beyond, you know, what everything is now because otherwise you're going you're gonna to get the same responses and the same answers to the, to the challenges. Um, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more with that I mean, because we do huge amounts of work, not just stakeholder engagement, but also um, we have a customer community that we work with because we don't have customers yet. So we, we work with Transport Focus and we run engagement sessions and we share ideas with what our future customers could look like because we don't have all the answers. I really couldn't agree with all, you know, we don't have all the ideas and we only move forward with our ideas and with our con concepts if we're continually testing them out, you know, we're, you know, we're agile yeah, in terms of that. And we also, you know, sort of like we do lots of ethnography, you know, looking at what actually people do, you know, and that is hugely useful, you know, to finding out how, how you deliver those services because what people say they do and then what they actually do are like two different things and it's really insightful. And we continuously say that you have to walk in other people's shoes to be able to really understand what it is that they want from a service. So I think HS2 use platforms like, is it i3P? It's, it's like a, a sort of um, an ideation platform. Um, that's for government and, and large. Uh, has anyone come across this? Oh, yeah, I think we, it's we do from yeah. supply chain. Yes, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, some stuff like that. You know, to get those different ideas. And we've done a, a similar sort of thing recently around innovation partners, mm -hmm. trying to just put out a whole host of questions and go right. People just just give us 
ideas we've maybe not thought about. Yeah. Um, and that's that's rolling through at the minute. Um, and, and we're going through that process. But I think we've also done some stuff in I3P as well. Um, so from Fujitsu's point of view, um, for us, it's all about, you know, the, the whole diversity thing, right? So it's diversity in the thinking, the background, age, you know, the balance. Everything needs to be taken in consideration when we call creating. And it's not about Fujitsu um, in the room. It's about Fujitsu and others being in the room. So often we do have... Um, you know, competitors are actually in the room, but they, they want to be part of that solution. So we'd rather have that dialogue in the room and then come up with a value proposition or an idea and fix that. Um, we have uh, some academia in the room who's done research in a particular area, for example. And there was one that we, we did with, uh, with, with TFL recently. But it's around backing up uh, the idea that we're trying to do with, with stats and research and uh, supports what we're trying to do here, not just having an innovation session for the sake of it. There is a tangible problem here that we're trying to fix. Um, we've had people uh, apart from, you know, from the grad scheme and universities and so on doing their degrees as well. So I attended a uh, Nottingham University, like 150 students running innovation sessions over there around different ideas and you know, it's, it's great to see that some new talent coming into the market, bringing those ideas through, where we would, you know, shows my age a little bit here. But, uh, you know, I, I have a bit of a kind of luggage, uh, you know, that, that I could carry. And, and sometimes, you know, I'm constrained with that. So it's great to be able to get, you know, myself disrupted within that process. So the diversity in the room is great, different ways of view, and there's no idea is a bad idea. You just take it and build on it. And this is where you see the power of co-creation and the frameworks coming together. I think following on from that as well, one of the absolute best examples I ever saw was quite recently, it was between Lego, Lego Group and yeah. Volvo, and they got a load of school kids um, to just go right... So if we've got, you know, loads of um, autonomous, you know, quite big, heavy plant type uh, things, how might we you know, go around automating those? Um, and the kids came up with an absolute genius idea, which was, well, you don't need to put the automation equipment on all the different vehicles because that'd be quite expensive because they don't all run at the same time. What if you had a tethered drone that goes and plugs into the top, floats above the vehicle and provides a LiDAR scan around the outside of it? And then when you've done with that vehicle, you plug it into the next one, which means you can be quite flexible on what type of vehicles you're using for different jobs. And Volvo would basically went, wow, we've never thought of this. And then Lego <laughs> made it into an actual set. Yeah. Um, so now the kids you know, thought of this idea, can now build it. And I I'm, think I'm Volvo actually looking into this idea in more detail now because it's actually genius. <laughs> But it takes, you know, a child with like yeah. a fairly naive world point, you know, to, to sort of come up with these absolutely sterling ideas. Yeah, I do love that for that innovation can really come from anywhere. Yeah. Where else around the world have you guys looked to for inspiration? Where have you seen ideas from other rail stations, uh, transport providers or airports around the world for hey, we could do some of that, we should try adapting it to our environments. From a from an airport's point of view, I think from an, what's quite interesting is looking towards um, some of the Asian countries. So, you know, everyone sort of talks about Changi Airport 
uh, has been like a world leader in, in airports and they constantly win best airport in the world sort of stuff um, and their, their sort of you know, view on technology is really interesting and they will try out innovative things um, like wayfinding and things like that which is quite interesting I think the other bit for me um, is actually looking at Japan and what they're doing around robotics in airports and yeah there's a different cultural sort of uh, sort of aspect around robotics in Japan um, but some of the things that they're doing um, and working with and co-creating across different different uh, areas to create things like autonomous wheelchairs for example and that could bring uh, passenger mobility away from being pushed around in an airport to having complete independence um, that's the sort of stuff that you know, genuinely truly excites me um, and that's where I always look towards that, saying, what are they doing uh, in that space um, I think again on Asia for, for rail is it exactly the same um, but not necessarily from a technology point of view because I think they just completely look at what does the customer want because I've done various international trips around the world comparing European high speed or, or stations to to America to Asia and because when you when you do a study tour you get to ask the questions you're not just thinking well why do they do that you get to say well that's interesting so you know why do you do it that way and I think what's really interesting is that when you speak to the Japanese they they kind of give you this quizzical look and then they say to you because the customer wants it so that's not really a novel idea, but everything they do is focused on the customer. So, you know, if you take their smart card, they have individual companies um, that are not integrated with each other. And they realised a few years ago, in a similar way that we have in UK Rail today, that we do not have an integrated smart card system. Everybody is doing their different thing. And they were like, well, the customer didn't like having half a dozen cards and they didn't operate each other. So they worked together to solve it. And, you know, commercially, they still work, you know, it, they still work in their silos in ter terms of their commercial interests. But they overcame that so that as a customer, you only need one card and it operates throughout the whole of Japan. You know, not just on the high-speed rail, it works on the metro, it works on the buses, whatever way you want to travel, it will work. I think they still have a way to go in terms of how they integrate it in with other, you know, with you know, where it goes with taxi services and everything. But probably in Europe, the closest we have to that at the moment is probably Germany with the Deutsche Bahn card where you have annual travel and you travel wherever you want on that card yeah but i don't think anywhere else in the world is as close as japan or in terms of that and that it was always an interesting one with the cards and smart cards i know some of the uk rail operators are putting smart cards in now i've never quite understood the point of it i i can go to um there's a danish bakery that's a small chain in in the uk and i can register my uh, credit card against their loyalty scheme and when I use my credit card in the store, I instantly get the points. Said, Why can't we do that for trains? Why can't I assign my credit card to have been you know, my season ticket or whatever? So when I go and tap with that card, be it on Apple Pay or physical card, that it just knows that that's me. 
and that I've got access to that that system. I, I, because yeah. because it requires a different mindset. Yeah. Because um, yeah, as a transport provider, I'm not looking at the importance of that data or the importance of what that is to the customer. I'm just looking at it. You want to travel? I'm going to take your fare. I'm not looking outside of that very narrow box in terms of you know what can that data do for me as a commercial organization yeah because also talking back to japan you know and saying rabbi you're saying earlier about integrating with retail well i can use the same smart card to purchase something in a shop on tokyo station i don't need to use my credit card for it You've drawn in three very interesting points there. Firstly, how do different transport providers who are typically competitors for that same fare start working together in a more collaborative, say, mobility service environment? How do they better use their, the data from consumers for their own purposes? But also, how do we actually bring citizens and passengers into the co-creation process? I want to touch firstly on the bit about competition. How do you see the collaboration changing over time between these different transport providers who typically would have been competitors in the same environment, now coming together to be part of a collaborative environment, providing a better, well, hopefully a better service towards citizens. Yeah, um, so this uh, this point is very close to my heart. Um, I, I am actively uh, working on breaking down those uh, those barriers. I, I think it's uh, it's a matter of time when this is going to happen. It is inevitable, uh, personally. Um, it, it's A is you've got... Um, new generation coming to the market, demanding new different types of service, different way of thinking. Um, you've got now the disruption in the market. I think, um, you know, somebody mentioned earlier that I think if you're not disrupting your own business model, somebody else will come and do it. Um, so, and this is now well known in the industry that is, you know, you need to think differently and, and, and so on. Um, I think emerging technologies right now coming into the market allows us to do that. So you don't have to integrate business model maybe a step too far, but you can integrate what sits in the middle to create that seamless service. I think Joanne mentioned something around having something like that in the middle to integrate. So you can still be your own, let's say, legal and business entity as such, but you're only calling upon services when you need it, and that kind of sits in the integration. Uh, cloud services, API integration, DTI integration, uh, you know, services on demand are now available. So there's no, really no excuse to actually uh, not to do it uh, in a way. So you, you've got the market are demanding it. Uh, you've got business models are demanding it in terms of thinking differently. Uh, and we've got uh, tracks and tracks of, of different, you know, previous business models that have gone bust. Um, we talked about, you know, the old blockbusters where they had, you know, a, a store on every high street. And that was a sustainable business model for a while until on demand came in and they went bust and they said they'll survive through that. You know, there were multiple examples where this has not happened. So I, I think that, that there's a milestone here that I talk a lot about is 2025. Okay, so if you've not really disrupted your own business and really started collaborating, you are going to fall behind because somebody else would have done that and then you're really trying to play catch up and that's too late by then and there's no reason why you shouldn't start now. 
say by 2025, Johanna, you say HS2 is going to launch by 2026. How do you go about disrupting your own rail business model? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you look to what the future of what citizens will I think it's interesting because I don't know whether in rail you have to be that disruptive to disrupt it. Um, because we, we have some ideas, but um, sometimes when we talk to people... Yeah they're not as radical as maybe we think. And some of it is just about actually giving people what they want. But I think rail and probably, you know, I'm gonna say all land transport, air probably still remains relatively competitive within the market because they have a lot more flexibility um, within what they can do with fares. And it's been a lot more competitive than, than maybe rail has to date. But I think there is just going to be a huge shift in mindsets and behaviours and culture. And it's already starting to happen. But I think land operators are kind of trying to bury their head in the sand. And people require personalisation. That, you know, they have more choice. And I think as technology enables them to have more choice, you know, we have no idea yet what the impact of autonomous vehicles will be. And that will be a real competitor to rail. You know, not necessarily high speed, but in the way we commute, in the way we just plan our journey. So I will truly, probably within 10 years, be able to do true A to B planning, maybe using four or different types of transport providers. And I need a platform that allows me to do that and interchange and to seamlessly interact. And probably if, if the car industry or the rail industry, I mean, I think TfL are already starting to see this. If we don't react to how that change is happening, then effectively we will find ourselves out of business. Yeah, in the same way, you know, that Kodak did when they thought digital cameras weren't going to be a thing, people would still want to print off their photographs. I think I think the rail and I think I think rail's going going to benefit quite a lot from autonomous vehicles. I think once you, the, the I talk to a lot of people about trying to get public transport to work. It's one of our big sort of you know, things at work, trying to get people as many people as possible to get on public transport. And a lot of people sort of say, oh, I can't get to the station that easily and things like that. Well, if you could book a, an autonomous car service that take you, you know, maybe two or three others and there's a pool to the station on time, I think the trains are going to benefit massively from that. Um, I, I don't see how they wouldn't. I agree. Yeah. I mean, but it's it's that kind of thing you have to look at. You don't. You have to look at it positively in how you know, you can meet what the consumer wants, yeah. you know, in terms of that. And I think for UK Rail, there, there may be some difficult policy decisions that have to be made because we talk, for example, about train stations that don't have much use. And in the future, actually, you could have a grown-up conversation that says, actually, that only has 2,000 passengers a year. So let's close that station down and provide either a service that takes you to a, state, a railhead that will then enable you to get your journey quicker and overall give you proper A to B planning. Because people don't go from station to station 
or airport to airport, they go from home to work or home to holiday destination or whatever. And you've got to enable all of that to come together to be truly seamless. Yeah, I think this is definitely complementary services. They do complement each other. The bit that I, I really struggle with is, is there's a lot of talk about actually we need to do these things, but it's not been done. And, and really in, in Fujitsu, we, we're driving our conversations now to the next level. So there's a lot of talk about mobility as a service and how would that look like. But then the next level is how do you start executing that? I think there's a little bit around that that is still missing. So you've got you've got the technology at one end and if you've got the vision and the business model on that, but it hasn't really started yet. And I think you look at public transport and automotive, they're doing their own thing. There's not, you know, so when you're talking about that kind of seamless journey to a station head or to get you there, nobody started that. So we are changing a conversation now in Fujitsu. It's like, you know, don't show and, you know, no show and tell, just, just show, show the way, you know, start actually doing the things um, and choose a couple of nuggets where you can start to tick these things over. And that's, uh, that's what I think it's important as a next discussion, because there's a lot of talk about what that vision looks like and not much execution in my view. And Poison, how do we actually start bringing passengers into this collaborative process and ensure that they are starting to trust the direction and the technology that we're moving towards? We've talked a lot about different policy solutions, some of the technologies that might come forward, but how do we actually ensure that the services we are co-creating here are relevant to the actual consumer and what they want for that seamless journey? So what we've done in, so in Fujitsu, we've gone out to the public and asked them about, we did a survey to ask them about a couple of points around what's their, do they understand what the future could look like? Do they actually care about what the future looks like? Um, how would emerging technology, new technology comes in? And it's quite surprising that there's a not, not a lot of confidence. I think there's a, a huge potential there as a summary. Um, and, and going back to the floor is the best way to do it. Okay, so we're there. So we're kind of leading that technology and the visionary stuff, but nobody's talking to the people who are actually consuming that. So I see co-creation, you know, not just the partners, the wider ecosystem, the customers, also the people as well at the same time. So a part of doing the research is actually bringing those conversation into co-creation and innovation sessions that says, do you know that your customers are thinking about this in this way? Now, if you are great, let's try and solve this and, and you know improve the service or maybe put a different message out there. After all, if we're going to create something that is not going to be consumed, we might as well not create it, to be honest, because we should have the, the, you know, the, the human at the center of it all. And that's that last bit. That's exactly what I was about to say, because we think about the, the customers and passengers and things like that, and rightly so. We also have to think about the workers. So we can't, at the same time, as make everything so amazingly good for passengers if the workers then have got like a second fiddle to that a little bit. Because, um, yeah, it's got to work for everybody. And sometimes, you know, both sides might have to make compromises on it. But the other bit as well, which is sort of the difficulty with it, because we try and involve passengers as much as possible in, in passenger-facing uh, innovation trials because otherwise you're not going to get the insight that you need uh, to see if it's successful but at the same time 
you've got to look at the sort of Steve Jobs model as well as like actually sometimes you've just got to tell people what they want as opposed to, you know, because people might never get to that realisation on their own. We were sort of saying before, and when you put something in front of someone, they go, oh, yeah, that's a really good idea. I never yeah. thought of that. And sometimes you have to do that rather than asking because otherwise you would get the sort of Ford motor company, sort of Henry Ford thing of oh, faster horses rather than a car. Because um, people do think in that linear pattern sometimes. And sometimes you do need to put something in front of somebody and then go, what do you think of this? As opposed to going and asking and then trying to develop something off the back of that ask. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's got to, sometimes it has to be both I th- ways. I think absolutely. I, I, I get that. There's the you know, balance of both words. Uh, for me, is is also around you, you, a lot of these new initiatives is, is taken you know, it's, it's taken for granted that there's are people who are going to be able to consume these services. There are people who are not going to be able to consume these services, right? It's all tailored for kind of new generation born with tech or they've been there. We are at risk of leaving some people behind as a part of that. So what we really need to get the balance right, absolutely get the balance right. Um, when we're innovating, we, we, we need to kind of make sure that, you know, we take accessibility as a, uh, as a, you know into that conversation. How would somebody you know with special needs need to access that service and and interact with that service? How is kind of older generation that still needs to consume that service in a different way? So absolutely, going into the market is one way. You often get a lot of uh, you know <clears throat> new generation responding to surveys because they want the new fast tech, the new shiny things. But you're absolutely right. Is is also you know what. You need to make sure that you've got a diverse portfolio and, and the idea you're putting forward does not leave anybody behind. And it's because, it, like, even today, so just getting to this podcast recording, um, there was some uh, transport issues. And you see a lot of people who make the same journeys every day. And they've got you know, a really powerful transport planning app you know, in their pocket um, of various flavors. I mean, yet yeah, you see people queuing you know, 100, 200 deep at a closed tube station because uh, they've not bothered to go and look at the thing that's the m- magic thing in their pocket that tells them you can actually go a different way mm-hmm. to get to work. You don't have to stand in this queue for a long time. So even though people have got that stuff, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to use it. And I was thinking on the way in, actually, a, a really good example of this. So, yeah, there's lots of ride-hailing services that are on apps and things like that. But, yeah, for me, the most effective is... A black cab coming past and it's got its little for hire light on. It's such a really simple thing, doesn't require any technology, anything like that. And you sort of think, what other things could you do that might provide access um, to people that don't necessarily have the technology or just don't use it because they've sort of not gone to that that natural leap? And um, what other things could we do potentially like that? You know, really sort of ubiquitous sort of orange light yep. um, in some of these areas where we're thinking about about you know, mobility as a service and things like that. I want to touch on that example there you said of the closed tube station. People go very habitual, they'll just follow the usual route into work without checking the app beforehand. Yeah. Now we kind of see with like the Google Now type surface coming out, kind of predictive uh, information being pushed through to your phone to give you ideas and options. That can happen with transportation, but that requires them knowing a lot about what you do and how you move around and when you move. A lot of personal data involved in there. What are the data privacy and intellectual implications we need to think about here? And 
how do we market this effectively to end users to say, we would like to use your personal data to provide this better service and make them feel comfortable about that? Because that's quite a lot of very personal information you yeah. raised in that example. Yeah. yeah, I know we talk a lot about being able to dial up and down what you give providers and sort of like and how you share it, but um, also about ensuring that there's a, a value exchange in there that I give you my data, but I'm going to get something back in return, you know, whether that's a, a free ride or a free coffee or whatever, but the value, you know, is very much understood and it becomes um, very transactional because we talk a lot about um, making sure that individuals always remain in control of what they're doing. You know, so it allows it to be inclusive. It allows you to keep the value. Uh, absolutely, the value is 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 one one side of the equation. I think I think about it slightly differently. Actually, I don't think it's as much of a concern as we think it is. Because you know, a lot of people have got their personal data online. Uh, they're already sharing that. Uh, the value is there, but equally as important is the trust. Um, so, I'm happy to give you that. If I get value in return, brilliant, but I also need to trust you. And we know examples that have been in the media where particularly social media events where trust has been lost um, where, or confidence has been lost, let's say, in, in that. So is it, is it, you know, it's that equation. Um, but ultimately, I don't think it is a problem for, for somebody to use the data as long as it's obviously used in the right way. Consent has to happen, um, obviously, uh, but then you don't really need to keep the data once you've actually took that data, digested it, and you know turned that into a meaningful information. You can dispose of it, so you could you don't have to keep it long term. Because uh, to be fair, is yesterday's data is not relevant to what I'm trying to do today because that data would have changed anyway. So I'm only assessing, or I'm only getting the value out of it in that point in time. This is why you need really powerful technology like quantum coming into the equation where you're able to digest huge amount of data really, really quickly and give you information so you can adapt your services in real time rather than the next that's, day. That's absolutely right because we envisage a future where you know I can be sat here on Baker Street and I'm booked on the 11 o'clock train from Houston and it's actually telling me where my seat is, where I need to go, what platform I'm on, whereabouts on the platform I've got. Oh, and by the way, you can nip by your favourite coffee shop and pick up your coffee on the way. So you've got it for your journey. And actually, if it's noticing that I've not moved, it's actually saying, we've noticed you're probably not going to have enough time. You'll get a bit stressed if you if you start rushing. We'll just book you on to the next service and you'll get you and you'll just be continually updated. If you have the disruption like they had at Paddington today, it will automatically tailor that in and offer you choices as if to whether you want to book later, whether you want to go a different way. And we envisage that very much as being part of the future, not just of HS2, but of rail. I think what we need to be worried, uh, you know, cautious about as as industries, though, is that we can't then turn that into a, a two tier system, where if someone doesn't want to, you know, give up all that information, even if it is discarded, 
and if someone doesn't want to you know, have all that information at their fingertips, that we don't give them a second-class service, effectively, um, just because they choose not to have the latest smartphone. I know people that have, you know, donkey's years old iPhones, and they're still quite happy with it because they get online, they get text messages and all that sort of stuff. But they can't download the latest apps because, you know, for whatever reason, security stuff that they've not updated or can't update to to the latest version of iOS, for example. What do we do about, about people like that, where they might not have the ability to get an upgraded phone? Yep. Are we just going to ignore them? I don't think we no, should. No, we, <laughs> no, we, 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 we definitely do not ignore them. Um, we do lots of work in terms, you know, because we, we've created future customer personas of what the future customer will look like. You know, we've given them characteristics, what type of abilities they have, whether they like tech, don't like tech. And we map their journey. So we map their journey from a digital system. We map their journey through an undigital, you know, what would the human approach be? Um, what would be the the approach actually, even if the, the whole system went down, you know, what are the different use cases within that system? So we know it, you know, as much as we can predict what we think each other to make sure that we do remain inclusive for everybody. Yeah. Good. And, and this is exactly my point earlier around diversity and inclusion when yeah. it comes to that, right? We should not leave people behind when we're talking about the future. We should definitely make sure that it works now uh, for for all works, you know, all backgrounds, um, or technical, non-technical capability and so on. Uh, you know, we shouldn't really use that as an excuse to deliver a new service or whatever it is. It should be, by default, uh, inclusive and accessible. Um, and, and this is why... We're always in, in these sessions in, in, in Fujitsu, like we're trying to say, you know, why, like, you know, you keep talking about the whys in terms of that. And it really is when it comes to it, you'll find a lot of people who are actually vulnerable needs that service a bit more than actually the new generation. Because, you know, new guys could go into, for example, the latest iPhone, Google search, or whatever it is. But, but somebody maybe who needs to get from A to B and not necessarily uh, fully able may need that service more than actually somebody who's able. So if you think about it this way, we should be innovating the other way and making sure that we're delivering a product that delivers you know, diversity and inclusion at the heart of it all. That's a really important point in innovating for diversity and inclusion, particularly for people who have low-tech capabilities or just don't want to engage in that type of system. So how do we get the different service providers, the city authorities, the businesses to ensure that those types of passengers also get a properly integrated service and a first-class service that are not becoming second-tier passengers? I think one of the, um, the things that you could do around this is, um, is, is making some of this data available and open. To allow for, you know, maybe a, a third party that is wholly dedicated to, you know, a certain subset, um, you know, of travelling public, you know, they could create something for, for those people, um, and only by opening that data up, you're going to be able to get those sort of you know, systems in place. For me, is is when we talk when we go into these sessions, is is around having a sense of purpose, right? Okay, you know. 
why are you trying to do that? Look, you know, operators at the end of the day and other any organization, um, you know, in the UK and beyond have got that social responsibility agenda anyway. So so it is there. What what we need to do as as you know leaders and technologists and so on is is bring the technology that enables that vision and so on. So they've already got their own mission statements, they've already got their their initiatives. Um what we have to do is just complement what they're trying to do. So we're not very, very far. Actually, they're all thinking about it, but they don't really know how to start it or, or do it. What we should be doing is is enabling or bringing tech and thought leadership uh, within the sector and technology to bring it to life a bit more. And that's where I think that the magic happens. And what would you say like the key things that transport providers need to do to enable this seamless ecosystem to start coming together? <clears throat> An evening where... Uh, we can get together as, uh, as, as leaders within the sector um, or central of excellence, whatever you are going to call it, is is that when you start to talk about some of this in an open forum, they say, well, you know what, we've got similar challenges here. So immediately you've kind of bridged that gap and then said, right, okay, well, how can we do, how can we take this forward to fix this for all, not just in isolation? And it's, that's one way of starting to break down the barriers as well, because they all want to do the right thing for the passengers and societies and communities, and they all want to be seen that they're doing the right thing as well and executing on their promises. It's, it's not just a, a line on a, on a strategy or on a, on a paper. It needs to be executed. So when you start to get them in the room and talking, and this is why I think a lot of the co-creation session is is having different angles and different points of views to fix in the problem comes in really handy. Um, yeah, it's, it's sort of, I'll go back onto my point about, about open data. I think to, to enable all that, you know, you've got to allow for those sort of services. So I think TfL did an absolutely sterling job in this. And by opening up, you know, things like um, bus timetable information and live transport data, you know, I've got several apps on my phone that I use every single day, none of them built by TfL or supported by TfL because they run the data source effectively. Um, but that's, that has completely changed my life. Those apps every day changed my life completely by giving me that sort of information um, that's easily accessible. But also the same, the exact same data set you know, does the matrix boards as well. So people who don't have phones can also get this live data. And if you look at, so I live out in the countryside, we don't get any of that live data. Um, so if a bus turns up, you know, I've got no idea if it's going to be it's a timetable or not. I can sort of look on, you know, on a mapping provider and go, is there queues on the route? I can see well, it might turn up on time. Um, but then if you go and look at like the trains, there's another good example of this. You know, what they did with uh, the National Rail inquiries open data absolutely brilliant again the lots of apps that are available they can do not only just you know getting information but do ticket booking um the fact i can go and use a service to get a mobile ticket now to leave paddington it's brilliant i just I don't have to go to the ticket machines yeah. just pop it down open the gates done it's so simple you picked up a really important point there about connectivity like so many people who live and work in London, a lot of people actually come in from outside of London, yeah. from rural areas where there's very little connectivity. And we're talking about 4G, we're now talking about 5G coming in, we've got the first test beds coming in the West Midlands, offering loads of great opportunities. We're talking about it from a future technology perspective, how it's going to affect our mobility systems. But a lot of people still live in those connectivity black spots. So yeah. how, 
Where's the balance lie between implementing the new frontier of technologies such as 5G compared with filling in those connectivity black spots to ensure, again, an equal and reliable service to all passengers regardless of location? You know, if when you're in London, um, which you'd see as being, you know, a technology not not hotspot, you get black spots everywhere in connectivity because there's so many people trying to consume the service. So actually going out to you know some of the rural areas where you know some of our areas I've got 4G now, you're getting a much better speed uh, than you're getting in the in the urban centres. So I think there's a, a slightly different one is actually if, if lots of people consuming that service in the, in the sort of populated areas, are we going to see the same sort of issues we've had with 4G uh, that we do, you know, in some of the really super rural areas at the minute, um, where we've got this bizarre sort of uh, sort of backwards view of you've got not many people but a great service or nothing, or you've got a lot of people and a great service or nothing. <laughs> well, it's even worse than that, actually, because... Um you know, in terms of the range, 4G gives you a much wider range. 5G is a smaller footprint uh, with with a faster bandwidth. So it's going to get worse when it comes to rural areas. Um, I think uh, the way I see 5G rolling out, it, it is going to be the Heathrow and the stations uh, and stuff like that. So again, it's going to be islands and pockets. But then you're going to have some sort of extension to other areas, you know, via private LTE and so on to provide that service as a repeater, as, as a hop. Um, however, I think you're right. The more and more demand, we're going to have the same problem. Uh, I'm predicting even worse, actually. So if you've got 5G uh, device uh, and you're outside that range, you're you, you buggered away. You're not going to get that service at all because now you can default to three if you haven't got the four. Now, the way 5 is coming in, it's going to really cause a more challenge and disruption to those rural areas. Uh, and there's a danger of, of that happening. So we've gone around quite a lot today from co-creation to collaboration <laughs> to the ethics and privacy of data to the priorities of different technology types and how to ensure that consumers are both marketed to, included and we innovate for diversity and inclusivity. I mean, there's a huge number of competing priorities for these different transport providers beyond just doing the business as usual, getting the trains to run, the buses to run on time. If I can, to round up this podcast, ask each of you to give me your perspective on what should be the main priorities for businesses and public bodies as they prepare for the new mobility future. Where should they really be focusing their attentions? And if I can start with you, Robin... Um, it's going to be it's probably a different answer to everybody else, but I think it's just having that sort of positivity on it. I think if we if we as as businesses and innovators uh, sort of naysay and doom monger uh, certain technologies and things like that, I think people it will come into the sort of public uh, sphere. Whereas if we try and create that sort of utopic vision uh, that things might be like this, um, you know, that's that's what's going to get us there. If you look at how you know, and it's a bit of a silly example, but look how Star Trek has, has evolved consumer technology over the last sort of 50 years. You know, before, you know, you know Star Trek, you know, automatic doors didn't exist, really. <laughs> it's just a, simple things like that, or people laughing at Jean-Luc Picard's, um, what was effectively an iPad. Uh, and even in, even in just, you know, a couple of years before the iPad, people were still laughing at that as a concept. Oh, you'll never take off. Why would anyone want a tablet computer? Yeah. But I think if we keep, as innovators 
keep thinking about you know the the positivity of this technology and what it could unlock um i think that's probably the best way we can as an industry move things forward because if we keep those future visions alive they will happen I'm probably not going to be that much different, actually, after you saying it would be different, because I, I think it's right that, yeah, it is about keeping that future, but also just enabling, you know, the systems to keep evolving and for consumers to define how they want to use them, because... I always, you know, you're saying about, you know, how you'd use an iPad. Why would anyone want an iPad and that? But I always think of um, Tim Berners-Lee when he says, what did you think, you know, would you use the internet for when you when you invented it? Uh, or what you wouldn't use it for? And he was just like, cat videos. <laughs> yeah, I was like, how many cat videos do we watch every day? You know, and the thing is that, and it just cheers me up. Yeah. And that's the things you have to, you have to enact as an enabler to allow consumers to define how they want to use a service. Uh, for me, is 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 really two things. Is well, a couple of things, <laughs> uh, but having a pair, sense of purpose. So you know, always focus on the human side of it, um, and societies and communities. Okay, um, put that in front of your own business needs and business benefits when it comes to that. It's, it's a different shift in mindset, but when you start to think about that. You, you know, you kind of then in a different mindset completely. It's not around your own revenue generation or benefit. Of course, you're going to have to run that service, but also you need to put something else as a as a purpose. And the other thing is, you know, stop talking, start doing. Uh, I think th this is another thing that really frustrates me a little bit in the industry is, you know, reach out for your partners and say, you know what, I've had enough of talking about Maz and integrated mobility. Where do I go from here? How do I start to do things and execute things? And that's that's what we should be looking at. Lovely. Positivity, purpose, focusing on citizens and let's get moving. What a great way to wrap up this uh, episode of the podcast and for our series as a whole too. taken on some pretty huge topics through the course of this podcast series and it feels like we've really only just scratched the surface but i've really enjoyed sharing these conversations and i hope you've all enjoyed listening in too if you've joined us late and missed out on the previous two episodes then i would strongly recommend that you double back and take a listen a big thank you to everyone who's joined me over the course of the series and to my guest today if you'd like to find out more about fujitsu's work in the transport sector and its vision for the future of mobility then do go and search fujitsu global transport a big thank you again to everyone and thanks to all of you for listening in.